Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. This morning, we turn to uh, a series of passages. I'm going to pray that God watches over us as we look at them. I'm not going to invite you to rise for the reading of them. It's a long portion, and I'm going to want to make comments as we go through it. And so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to remain seated and join with me in prayer that God will bless our time in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its power and glory. Father, as the, the one that you have given the, the, the joy and the weight of preaching, I pray, Father, that my words will not be my words, but that they may be from you, and that you may own them by your Spirit's power accompanying them, and by bringing conviction both in the speaking of them and in the listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Matthew 15. If you have your Bibles, and please take them out, Matthew 15, 29 through 16, 12. We're in the midst of a series of kind of parallel events in the ministry of Jesus, strangely parallel. In Matthew 14, we read that John the Baptist, Jesus' predecessor, the forerunner, the prophet that foretold him, the Elijah who was to come, is killed. He's killed. Jesus goes away. He wants to be in a secluded place, but the crowds follow him. And he goes in a boat, the crowd appears, and it's evening, and there are, there's nothing to feed them. And so Jesus tells his disciples, you give them something to eat, and they say, we don't have anything. And so he says, bring it to here, and he feeds the 5,000 off of the five loaves and the two fish that are collected by <clears throat> the disciples and brought to him. Immediately after that, the disciples go in the boat. Jesus stays behind, dismisses the crowd, prays. Then he walks on the water to the boat. In the boat, Peter sees Jesus, understands who he is, and asks Jesus to command him to get up and walk on the water, as he's doing. Jesus does so. Peter gets up. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. He starts walking, and then he sees the wind and the waves, and he falters. But it's a very interesting thing, because he looks at Jesus as he's faltering and falling down, and he says, he says, Lord, save me. He says, uh, I need help. And uh, literally, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand. So, so Peter obviously knows that Jesus has the power to save him. But Jesus says to him, oh, you of little faith. In other words, it is not faith simply to know that Jesus has power or to understand that God has power. This was weak faith, even though he reaches out to Jesus. Then, coming out of that, there's a Pharisaical test. The Pharisees come and test Jesus, and they, well, they, they're coming from Jerusalem, and they ask him, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus responds and says, why do you yourselves transgress? And he says to them, look, you guys are hypocrites. You, you call out my disciples for not washing their hands before a meal, and yet you say that, that people can dispense with the whole of God's moral law because you say they can say to their parents, you don't get anything from me 
the honor that I owe you, I'm going to give it to God instead. And so it's, it's a subterfuge. It's a, it's, it's a lie. They're really keeping it for themselves, and they're saying it, they're dedicating it to God. And Jesus says, this is ter- terrible. This is hypocrisy. And, and then following that, he says to the disciples, well, he says to everyone, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out, because what comes out is out of the heart, and out of the heart comes sin. So he's declaring the source of uncleanness to be the human heart, not the food that man eats. And it's a constant human temptation to say that the sin of our lives is outside us. That we did it because of this, or that there was some reason for it. And that the solution, therefore, lies outside us. We're going to listen to the elders. We're going to do so many things that will help us with our sin, not recognizing that ultimately what is needed is a new heart. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples and to the crowds and to the Pharisees, you guys are hypocrites, you don't understand anything. And then Jesus leaves, like he did earlier, okay? So he left after hearing about John the Baptist, again after this series of events, all of which took place in Galilee, all of which took place among the Jews, Jesus leaves and he goes up into Tyre and Sidon, 60 miles north, where he is for a period of time, we don't know how long, but there's evidence it could be as many as three or four months. He's working, he's ministering, the Syrophoenician woman comes to him, and he says to the Syrophoenician woman, when she comes to him and asks him to heal her daughter, he says, no, I've come for the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. She perseveres, she understands something, and, and finally Jesus says, Daughter, your faith is great. Go in peace. Your daughter is going to be healed or has been healed. So you have that, and that takes place up in Gentile territory. Then Jesus comes down, and, and this is where we, where we pick up this morning. He comes down from the area, the area of Tyre and Sidon, which is way north in Gentile land. He comes down to the east side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and again, a Gentile region, and he preaches to 4,000. A Gentile congregation, the 4,000 are with him three days. And it is a better three days than the day that he fed the 5,000. Because Jesus says to the crowds that come after him, after he has fed the 5,000, he says to them, you know, you follow me because I fed you. You're with me because you want food, literal food. But the the Gentile crowd, the 4,000, comes and spends three days without food. They're not following for food. They're following for the word of God, which is what they seek. So it's very similar, but it's a Gentile crowd. Immediately after that, Jesus gets in his boat, goes back to the Jewish region on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and there the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to test him again. All right? They come and test him. They ask him to show them a sign from heaven. And I'm going to start reading now. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. 
So he has come back from his northern trip, Tyre and Sidon. He's come back to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He's crossed to the west side, Jewish territory. He's confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then he goes away and he goes in a boat and he goes back further south on the east side into more, even more clearly Gentile area, the region of Gerasa, known, or known as the Decapolis often in the scripture because the Decapolis means 10 cities and it had 10 large Gentile cities in that region, the, the, the chief of which was Jerash today, Gerasa, back in biblical times, which was a huge Roman calling. And so Jesus has gone back there and he left them and went away. Verse 5, and the disciples came to the other side of the sea. So they, they make their way to the other side of the sea, again, to the eastern portion, to the, the Gentile region, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now that seems kind of like a non sequitur, doesn't it? A non sequitur is something that is not in sequence. It doesn't seem to follow. You don't sense the logic. They are saying, oh, we forgot our bread. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, there's a slight connection in leaven. But it's, it's not immediately apparent to us why he would warn them when they're saying, oh, we forgot the bread. Why he would go to say, well, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They began, and they don't understand it either. They don't get it. So they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. So obviously, they read Jesus as being angry at them. They understand he's, he's warning them, and they're saying, what's with him? Why is, why is he upset with us? You know, what, are you, what do you think the matter is? And they decide that, ah, he thinks we've been slackers. We didn't bring bread. We need the bread from home, and we didn't bring it, and now he's unhappy, and he's feeling hungry like we are, and that's why, okay? Jesus, aware of this, we read, said to them, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you don't understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? <laughs> now, you think they're talking about bread, he's talking about leaven, and why is he not speaking about bread? Why is his his criticism of them, not about bread. But he says, I wasn't speaking to you about bread. They were talking about bread. He was talking about leaven. Nah, I wasn't talking to you about bread. But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They understood then that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they understand that he has been critical of their listening to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he is warning them not to pay attention to the teaching, which he's called leaven, because it spreads and it infects. Now, our goal this morning is to talk about faith in a way that we often fail to talk about it. Faith is belief in something. Faith is confidence in something. Faith is seeing things that others don't see. The presence of God, the reality of God. Uh, faith is the, the assurance of things hoped for. I am assured that my hope is real. The certainty 
of things not seen. But actually, that certainty word from Hebrews that I just quoted is, is substance. The substance. Faith grabs an invisible substance and eats it and lives by it and acts by it. It is a power. It is a satisfaction. It is, it is to the man or woman of faith a tangible thing that is so real that we live by it. It is more real than the concrete of the floor or the wood of this deck or anything around us, even those we love. God is more real. This is faith. But of course, that is faith in its positive sense. Yet every statement of faith that is made positively requires negatively a rejection as well. You cannot affirm without also at the same time denying. And the problem is that very often we see people in the, in the Gospels affirming things, but their lack of faith is found in their refusal to deny what their affirmation would require to be denied. And so people look at faith as being entirely a positive thing and they don't recognize that faith is every bit as much a negative thing as it is positive. So four times in Matthew so far, Jesus has called his disciples, you of little faith. He did it in the Sermon on the Mount when he said to them, don't you know that your father cares for you, that he's going to feed and provide for you? If he provides for the grass of the field, which is, comes up today and tomorrow is gone, how will he not also much more powerfully take care of you, O oh, you of little faith? Now that's a little faith that doesn't understand the power of God. It doesn't affirm the power of God. It doesn't say God can do this. And it's worried and so it seeks things that aren't of God. Seeks money, seeks worldly approval, seeks peace and comfort in this life. Jesus is saying, don't you know that God is going to watch over you? The second time, he says, oh, you of little faith. The second time is the time when he's asleep in a boat and the disciples wake him up in the storm asking him, Lord, don't you care that we're going to die? And again, this is a failure to affirm. They call him Lord, they attribute to him the power of God, but they also say, don't you care? Do you not care as though God could not care for his creation? As though the Lord of the universe who's chosen these disciples has chosen them so that he's going to bash them into the water and drown them all? And so it's a, a lack of understanding of God's love and it's a, a, a desperate failure in faith because they do not affirm the love of God. Third time, there's a lack of faith. And Jesus says, you have little faith, it's Peter. Remember, Peter walking on the water, looking at him and saying, Lord, save me. He understands the power of Jesus. What he doesn't deny, and this is a failure of denial. He affirms that Jesus can save him. What he refuses to do and neglects to do is to deny that he's in any danger. He, does, he denies, he should deny, that the power of the waves, the power of the wind can get him. Faith requires denial. You cannot love God more than this world without 
A, loving God, and B, denying the world. So faith is as much a denial, and we see this in the, the great faiths. I, the one is the Gentile centurion, I won't mention it, who seeks his servant's healing. Actually, I will. The Gentile centurion says a serv- sends a servant, says, you don't even have to come to my house, Christ. Just say the word. I know authority. I understand your authority. You don't even need to come here. Just say it in my my servant, Jesus says, what great faith. I haven't seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. Why? Because he, he understands the greatness of Christ and he denies that Jesus has to come. He denies the need for Jesus to be there because he understands something about Jesus. So he says, don't even come. Same way with the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus says, daughter, your, your faith is great. Why? Not because she sought from him, thousands of people were seeking from him. Thousands of people knew he had the power to save, to heal, to deliver. But she said, when he said, no, I've come to the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel. Oh, but even the dogs eat what what falls from the children's table to the floor below. She denies Jesus' words. She denies what he says to her out of faith. She knows that God is a God of love. She knows that Jesus is the Savior of the world. She understands that he is a light to the Gentiles. She knows that God is testing her. Brothers and sisters, denial is especially important at times when God is testing you because what you're going to say is, what that woman didn't say is, well, God doesn't care for me. You must deny these lies. Now, I want to return to our passage and talk to you about what's going on in the boat with the disciples. And to talk to you about your need to deny one thing that is especially important in your life and which I think most of us have cultivated the ability never to deny, never to say, never to discriminate, never to discern about. We are to deny the need for bread of the world. Jesus is our bread. We are to deny the need for water of the world. Jesus is the water of life. We are to deny the need for money. Christ is our treasure. There are many things that we're to deny. But the most important and the most significant denials that you will make by faith in your life are of other people. And this is an ability that few of you have. And I will say honestly that most of us have actually cultivated the inability to deny and to discern those who are against God. We think it righteousness to ignore the people who hate God and to pretend that they are just like us. And so we go through life saying, yeah, you're a Christian. Yeah, you're a Christian. I don't agree with you, but yeah, you're a Christian. And so we say, Beth Moore, great woman. We say of people like Rick Warren, great man, great man. We have no discernment. We have cultivated an attitude that is precisely the attitude that Jesus attacks in his disciples here. What is going on here? What is the point of this passage? They're in the boat. They're going across to the other side. They realize they don't have bread. Do you think there's no bread in Garassa? You think that the capitalist is lacking in bread? You know that when the disciples find themselves traveling in there without bread, what do they do? 
Well, it happens in the book of John in chapter 4. They go into a town, and they leave Jesus at the well. And they go into the town to get bread. It's a Gentile town. It's a Samaritan town. They go into the town. They go to a shop. They buy bread. They return back. They find Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, and they're, they're surprised. So is the woman. While the disciples are gone, the woman has come to water. Jesus asks her for water. She says, you, sir, how is it that you, being a Gentile, ask me, a Samaritan, for water? Why does she say that? She understands that the Jews will not eat with Gentiles. Jews do not eat with Gentiles. Now, is that found in the Old Testament law of God? Is it found anywhere in the Old Testament? No, it's a tradition of the Pharisees. They say, if you eat with a Gentile, you are likely, you're likely to intermarry with the Gentiles. And if you intermarry with the Gentiles, then you're going to become an idolater. And so they base this in the second commandment. You shall, have no, you shall not create for yourselves a graven image. And out of the second commandment, they pull this application, don't eat bread with Gentiles, right? And so the woman is surprised that Jesus is willing to talk to her, is willing to take water from her, is willing to be alone with her. It remains a teaching of the Torah today that you are not, as a Jew, to eat with Gentiles. But you know what else they said? They also said that if you go to a town and there's no grocery store there, speaking in our terms, if there's no bakery there which makes bread, then you can't take bread from the local people, you can't buy it from them because by extension of that principle I already talked about, about not eating under their roof, you are coming close to eating with them and their bread is forbidden you. This is the teaching of the rabbis. This was in place at the time of Jesus. And so if you look, if you look <laughs> at Kashrut Kham, the premier kosher information source on the internet. And it's hearkening back to the teaching of the Pharisees. It's the teaching of the Pharisees, and it's still in place today. The Gemara in Avodah Zara 35b explains there are certain items that are not prohibited on a Torah level, but are prohibited by the rabbinic decree. Among the items listed is bread made by non-Jews. I'm sorry, I said it was in the Torah. It's not, it's in the commentary, the mission on the Torah. Rashi and Rambam, those are two Pharisees, rabbis, explain that the reason for this decree is to prevent intermarriage. The sharing of bread can create an atmosphere of friendship which can, God forbid, end up in intermarriage. The Shulkin Aruch Yora Dia 112.1 quotes the Rashba, another rabbi, who explains that this rabbinic decree applies even when there is no fear of intermarriage. For example, the bread of priests who themselves can't get married and don't have children. Who, nevertheless, the rabbinic decree still stands. Furthermore, the Shulkan, Eric, explains that this decree only applies to bread made from the five primary grains, wheat, barley, spelt, oats, and rye. Bread made from lentils, rice, or millet is not included under the prohibition of pasukum. The Taz explains... <laughs> 
<laughs> the reason for this distinction is that bread made from the five primary types of grain is a davar sheshuv, an important item, i.e. only an item of relative importance can engender those feelings of friendship that could lead to intermarriage. You know, these Pharisees, we began with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're arch enemies, but they're united in their hatred of Jesus. They are discriminating machines. I mean, they know how to make a difference between wheat, barley, spelt, oats, and rye, and lentils, rice, or millet. I mean, they are discerning, discriminating machines. They make discernments and discriminations and judgments every day of their lives. They go around, you didn't wash your hands. Don't eat with them. Da-da, 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 da-da. But when they come in the presence of Almighty God, they say, give me a sign. I need a sign. They become blind. They become deaf. They can't see a thing. They can tell the difference between barley and spelt. But boy, they can't see the works of God and the teaching of God. They are blind to it. These masters of discernment. They have every form of discernment except the discernment they should have. So we have the disciples, and they're going across the water. And they're going to the other side. It's not a region with a lot of towns. A lot of people, not a lot of towns. Get further inland, there are towns. But it appears that they're staying relatively near the coast. And as they go, they say, we didn't bring bread. Well, they go lots of places without bread. What's the issue here? The issue is that they're going to a Gentile region. And they're remembering the teaching of the Pharisees. And they're worried. We're not going to be able to find pure bread. And so they say to Jesus, or they're speaking to each other and saying, we don't have bread, we don't have bread. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Why? Because they just had a confrontation with the Pharisees when they won't even admit that Jesus is of God. And now they're paying attention to the Pharisees, and they're not remembering that they're with the Son of God. They can't have Jesus and the Pharisees. You understand? You can't have Jesus and the people who deny what Jesus teaches. You can't have Jesus and Beth Moore. You can't have Jesus on a faculty row at a seminary and have half of you say that God is not a patriarchal God and not a father and have half of you saying that God is a father and that we are to think things of God that are found in patriarchy and have it all be a Christian faculty row. And yet, we have cultivated the ability to ignore things that should never be ignored. For the disciples, this journey, this question over bread, is a terrible and tragic lack of faith because they have not heard Jesus and they do not worship him. They have not heard him say in his saying that is what goes out of the heart, not what comes into the body that makes us unclean. Mark says, having said that, he declares all foods clean. 
There is no unclean food. There is nothing outside us, and there are no remnants of the law that can save you. They never did save, and they don't save. And if you rely on these things, as the Pharisees did, instead of relying on Jesus, then you are following the Pharisees. And let me tell you, there is only one choice. You can follow Jesus, or you can follow the rules. Jesus has the moral law. Jesus commands us to be holy. But if you have all the rules, you don't have Jesus. You must reject the rules and the rule givers to have Jesus. There are children in this church who are dying because they have rules and rules they can keep. But Jesus, they can't find. There are people in our church and in our community who prefer their rules to the freedom that Jesus gives. And this is tragic. Because the Bible is clear. We are to worship Jesus. He is our righteousness. And the Pharisees have only the law. And not even the moral law that requires that we honor our father and mother. Because they don't care about that. But their traditions and the food you eat and all these little picky yoon things. They are focused on. So I call you as we close to discriminate, and to discern. You understand that discernment and discrimination are the things that in moral areas and theological areas are the things that they separate you from the animals. And Jesus has said to the, to the Pharisees, you know, you guys are, are amazing. You can look at the sky in the evening and you can see it red, and you can say, ah, a fair day tomorrow. You've heard the saying, red sky in the morning, sailors, red sky in the, in the night, sailors delight, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Jesus is giving the old version of that. And he's saying, you guys, you know, you can look and you can read the sky. You know, with red at night, tomorrow it's going to be fair. You know, with red in the morning, that it's going to be bad not to go out on the lake. You know all sorts of things. You discriminate in all sorts of ways, but you can't see God. You don't see God. You're missing out on God. Even the animals discriminate. Animals can judge things and see things. We're told that little animals are unusually active right before an earthquake. They sense things. Dogs are trained to understand when a person is going to have a seizure and somehow they grasp that a seizure is imminent in a human being. Animals see things. Animals discriminate. What sets you apart from the animals is the ability to make moral judgments, spiritual judgments to say this is good and this is bad. And if you give that up, that power, that calling, that ability that is uniquely in the image of God, then you give up Jesus as well. What have you said no to because you know Jesus? What teacher have you said, that will not come in my home? 
What television shows, what objects of worship in your home, games, video sets, what have you said no to? Your life is defined by the things that you, using discernment, have said no to. Everyone, what's the percentage of Americans that say they believe in Jesus? Still, it's a majority, right? Am I right? I'm pretty sure I'm right. The majority of Americans say, I believe in Jesus. What sets you apart from them? It's what you say no to. It's the quality of your belief in Jesus that drives you to say certain things. No. We live in a day in which discernment is thrown away. You know, the crazy thing is the world judges you all the time. The unrighteous are perfectly willing to cast judgment on you. They're perfectly willing to say, you're stupid, you're immoral for disagreeing with them on homosexual marriage, you're wrong. They'll say all sorts of things. And we sit and we're like the old Mad Magazine character, Alfred E. Newman. What me worry? What me worry? We can't see. All around us, the world is judging us. And we won't say a negative word. This is not the life of Jesus it's not the life he calls us to. What books should be thrown out of your library? What podcast should you stop listening to because they're teaching falsehood? What people should you no longer be hanging about with? Look, it's not as though the Bible doesn't call you to discern. When Paul writes to the people in Timothy and says... Here, these are the qualifications for an elder. These are the qualifications for a deacon. It shouldn't be pugnacious. Now, do you find pugnacious in the Bible a definition? No. What is pugnacious? It means a person with a quick temper and prone to fight. Have you ever said that person's pugnacious? Have you ever considered the leaders that you vote for and thought, are they pugnacious? Let me give you a harder one. The Bible says, don't put a greedy man in as an elder. It doesn't say a man who steals. That would be pretty easy to judge, wouldn't it? But he says, Paul writes, don't put a greedy man in. Have you ever thought of someone in the church, and I'm not asking you to say who or <laughs> how, but have you ever thought of someone and said, that person is greedy? And if you never have, then how can you be living in accord with the Bible, which tells you you need to make discerning decisions like this, judgments. We don't go out and broadcast it from the top of the high bay, so-and-so is greedy, but we think about it when we nominate people for office. We think about it when we vote. As elders, we think about it when we are thinking about who should go before the congregation to be a deacon and an elder. The Bible expects discernment. And Jesus is angry with his disciples because although they claim him their Lord, they're still listening in one ear, to the teaching of these hypocrites, the Pharisees, who have nothing of Christ and only the rules. 
Who are you following? Who are you taking advice from? The Bible says you should look at your teachers. See the fruit of their lives. See if it adds up with their teaching. Church after church in America has in the last year alone had its pastors leave because of, because of adultery. What are these thousands of people doing in these churches? Have they seen nothing? Or have they covered their eyes to what they're seeing? Paul says, you know, it's a terrible thing that you're going before the magistrates with your, with your disputes. He says, let even the least among you, the least brother, judge the matter. Why? And because even the least Christian should be able to discern right from wrong. The Bible says that the saints will judge the angels. But if we operate in the judgment, in the judgment of angels, like we do in this life, we're going to give Satan a pass. We say, oh, poor guy, he probably, he had a hard home. He's had a hard life. Yeah. And we're going to let him go. If you fail at judgment, if you fail at discernment, if you refuse to open your eyes to the signs that are all around you of success and failure in the kingdom of God, then you will succeed at nothing in the Christian life. Why do we not judge? We don't have faith. The failure to deny is a failure to believe. The failure to reject is a failure to affirm. We don't believe that God will stand with us through the persecution that will come from making judgments. We're afraid. We know that one day we ourselves will face the judgment and we don't trust God to bring us through it. One day we will stand before God and if we have not judged ourselves but have relied on our rules like the Pharisees, if we have not judged ourselves and gone running to Christ as the only hope for our sin, we will stand before God still clothed in our sin and we will say to God when he says, damnation, what? Why? I'm a good guy. And Jesus says it. They'll say to me, what did I not do? You didn't discriminate. You didn't have faith. You said nice, pious platitudes about God and relied on your rules. And you didn't have a transformed heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will teach us to be free from the stain of hypocrisy and the reliance on our rules, Father. May we rely on Jesus and not be like the disciples who wanted to have Jesus and their rules at the same time. We turn aside from all falsehood, God. Open our eyes to your truth so that we can see falsehood and reject it. Fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we are agents of righteous judgment 
Father, understanding and being preserved by seeing things as they are rather than looking with blind eyes and listening with deaf ears. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.